From darkness to light, this is the story we all share as the people of God. He draws us out to draw us in. From the birth of Israel to the church today, God delivers and dwells with his people. This story began several thousand years ago, and it began with a promise from God to Abraham that he would make his offspring more numerous than the stars in the sky, a great nation who would one day dwell in the promised land. More than 400 years passed, and Abraham's descendants had not seen this promise fulfilled. The story of Israel is the story of us today. We are God's people. He draws us out to draw us in. And like the Israelites, we still await the promised land in the midst of our sin and suffering. Yet God is with us. Hey, good morning, Messiah. Oh, I don't know about you, but uh, I'll tell you, there are times in my life when I really don't mind when someone tells me what to do. Like when I'm driving around and I'm lost, it's really helpful then to take directions from the GPS lady on my phone. Or uh, many of you uh, just got back from spring break, a trip to Disney World. Man, let me tell you, that place confuses, you know, confuses me to no end. Um, I'm way out of my element at Disney World. There's so many choices about uh, where to go and what ride to ride next and all of that. And it's then that I really appreciate, I, I want someone to lead me, to take charge and, and tell me, hey, here's what we're going to do next and here's where we're going to eat lunch and here's what comes after that. Uh, fortunately for me, my kids are happy to oblige and lead the way. I appreciate it some of the time. But most of the time, I don't like being bossed around. How about you? How about when it comes to God? How do you react when God tells you what to do? Resist? Grumble? Obey? Pharaoh was the most powerful man in the world, and he didn't like being told what to do, and so nobody did. He was the one who gave the orders. And then Moses and his brother Aaron show up and say, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, let my people go. And Pharaoh replies, who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord and I will not let Israel go. Who is the Lord that I should obey him? Well, Pharaoh and all of Egypt is about to find out. Now, we haven't gotten to the Ten Commandments yet, uh, but we'll get there in a few weeks. However, there is one commandment at the very top of all the commandments, and it definitely comes into play today. You shall have no other gods before me. Well, Egypt had a lot of gods. Sun gods, river gods, harvest gods. Pharaoh himself was worshipped as a living god. And as author Peter Enns points out, with only a few possible exceptions, the Old Testament portrays that even the Israelites assumed that other gods exist, though they only worship Yahweh, their creator and their deliverer. But of course, they're going to need reminders along the way. Golden calf, anyone? 
God says, you shall have no other gods before me. In fact, no other gods exist except me. Ends continues, if we miss this, then we miss the whole theology of Exodus. A cosmic battle is afoot in this corner. The gods of the superpower Egypt with mighty Pharaoh as their earthly representative. And in the other corner, we have newcomer Yahweh, the god of the slaves who makes his home somewhere out in the wilderness and is represented by an 80-year-old shepherd. Well, let's get ready to rumble. Now, time is not going to allow us to get very specific with each of the 10 plagues today, but we will certainly see that it is a lopsided cage match indeed. But know this, God takes no pleasure in it. Pharaoh is a case study in the deceit of sin. His heart is hard. You read chapters 7 through 11, and it's like a slow-motion car crash that allows us to see this tragedy unfold. We want to step in and stop it, especially when we get to this very last plague, the death of all the firstborn sons of Egypt. Chapter 11 is our text, the plague of the firstborn. Now the Lord had said to Moses, I will bring one more plague on Egypt and on Pharaoh. After that, he will let you go from here, and when he does, he will drive you out completely. Tell the people that men and women alike are to ask their neighbors for articles of silver and gold. The Lord made the Egyptians favorably disposed toward the people, and Moses himself was highly regarded in Egypt by Pharaoh's officials and by the people. And so Moses said, this is what the Lord says, about midnight I will go throughout Egypt. Every firstborn son in Egypt will die, from the firstborn son of Pharaoh who sits on the throne to the firstborn son of a slave girl who is at her handmill, and all the firstborn cattle as well. There will be loud wailing throughout Egypt, worse than there has ever been or ever will be again. But among the Israelites, not a dog will bark at any man or animal. Then you will know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. All these officials of yours will come to me, bowing down before me and saying, Go, you and all the people who follow you. After that, I will leave. Then Moses, hot with anger, left Pharaoh. The Lord had said to Moses, Pharaoh will refuse to listen to you, so that my wonders may be multiplied in Egypt. Moses and Aaron performed all these wonders before Pharaoh, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let the Israelites go out of his country. This is God's word, and it is a very frightening word indeed. Up to this point, three times we are told that Pharaoh, that his heart became hard, that Pharaoh was hard and unyielding. He would not listen. He did not want to be told what to do. 
three times we are told that Pharaoh himself hardened his heart. But in this scene, we're told that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Enough is enough. Time's up. God's judgment is a scary, it's a very sad reality. And many Western Christians have a very hard time with the concept of God's wrath on sin and when his justice is carried out. I'll admit it. I don't like it. And I think that's probably because I've never been a slave. I've never been a victim of violence. I've never had to make bricks without straw. I've never had to hide my son in a basket and float him down the river because the government was killing all the baby boys in my community. But I'll tell you, if I was an Israelite in Egypt long ago, or if I was a Ugandan during the time of Idi Amin, or a Cambodian in the 1970s under Pol Pot, or a Russian in Stalin's time, or a Jew in Hitler's Germany, or a Christian in Mao's China, or a survivor of the Bosnian genocide in the 1990s, or a Ukrainian today, I would very much want a God of justice. I would have to believe that he will repay in the end that he will make things right. You see, if I lived in those times and places, I couldn't get justice for myself. But even if I could, it's not supposed to be on me to retaliate. The Apostle Paul speaks to this in Romans chapter 12. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Do not take revenge, my friends but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. And then Paul goes on to say, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That's how Christ followers are to respond to evil with good, because that's exactly what Christ has done for us. <laughs> Not easy to do. Practically impossible. But the fact remains that we are not God. He tells us, do not retaliate, that he is God, and he will take care of business in his own way. Well, here's how he did it when he freed the Israelites in Egypt. He did it through 10 plagues. Why plagues? Why didn't God just make the Egyptians take a 24-hour nap and then the Israelites could just walk on out? I'm just thinking out loud here. Well, here's why. The plagues are an act of revelation. God is showing and telling through these plagues who he is. There is no one on earth like him. 
He is the one true God, and he is sending a very loud and clear message to the Israelites and to the Egyptians and to you too. These plagues are a direct attack on the Egyptian gods. The first plague, for example, the Nile River turns to blood. Well, the Nile is what makes Egypt what it is. Egypt is totally dependent upon the Nile. It's all about the Nile, and so there's a God for that. His name is spelled H-A-P-I, pronounced happy. But happy is not happy. The water has become undrinkable, and that really puts old happy in an awkward position. Turning the Nile into blood is not only payback for the slain of all the Israelite male infants, but it also symbolized the slain, or at least the injuring, of happy. The second plague is the multiplication of frogs. Uh, this is hardly random. The Egyptian goddess of fertility is Hecate, which was depicted with the head of, oh, wait for it, a frog. Why a frog? Because when the Nile flooded each year, that was a good thing for the crops, and the frogs would come up out of the water, and so they were a sign of good things to come. It was about fertility. Fertility was extremely important in the ancient world, whether it be humans or animals or agriculture. Controlling fertility meant controlling economic power. And so the Egyptians revered Hecate. There were actual penalties for killing a frog in Egypt. Frogs were considered sacred, and so God sends frogs, lots and lots of them. Be careful not to step on one of your gods. Frogs all over the place, in pots and in pans and in between the sheets. Who controls fertility? Is it Hecate or is it Yahweh? That is the issue at hand. The first two plagues are a hard one-two punch at the very heart of Egypt. And this God who Pharaoh has never heard of, who lives in the outback somewhere, and whose worshipers have been enslaved for generations, has marched into Pharaoh's territory and is now calling the shots. It's Yahweh who is in control, and it is he who sustains Egypt and keeps it populated. Well, those are the first two. But as mentioned, we don't have time, really, for plagues three through eight. But here's a visual. We will look at nine and ten in just a bit. But what we need to understand for now is that through these plagues, God is unraveling creation. He is reversing it. Water no longer brings life. You can't grow anything with it. You can't drink it. It actually kills all the fish. Animals no longer serve humans. They invade and they destroy. Light goes back to darkness and life returns to dust. Everything is falling apart. Egypt is being unmade. Pharaoh's world is falling apart, disintegrating into chaos, darkness, and death. 
But here's the thing. This isn't just something that happened to Pharaoh long, long ago in a land far, far away, which doesn't have any application for us. Hardly. Don't be deceived. We should not look at this text and sit back and get all comfy. And, oh, I'm glad I'm not the Pharaoh of Egypt. No. Something very similar can happen to us. And that is the hardening of the heart. You see, we were made for God to be the boss of us. You might not like the sound of that, but it's true. We were made for him to tell us what to do. We were made for obedience and dependence upon God. And there is incredible fallout when we forget or ignore this. Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 32, is loud and it is clear in that it describes a terrifying reality that if we want to exchange God's truth for lies, that if we want to worship created things instead of the creator, he will let us. He will turn us over to our sinful desires. And that is a very sad and very scary truth. When we reject God, we are unmade, resulting in emotional and spiritual darkness, conflict, sickness, and ultimately death. Yes, God is completely forgiven, but he is absolutely just. He says, I am forgiven, but I never, never, never let sin go unpunished. Tim Chester writes, the plagues are a pointer to something bigger and actually more terrible. God told Pharaoh that his judgment is going to come, and then it did. And God has told all humanity that judgment day is coming. The plagues are a sign that God's judgment is real. A pretty tough Sunday, ain't it? Show up on the first day of spring, I'm thinking it's going to be fun. Nobody wants to hear about God's wrath. Nobody wants to hear about God's coming judgment. And to tell you the truth, I especially don't enjoy preaching it. But we need it. You don't like hearing it, I don't like saying it. But that don't make it any less true or needful. No, if we are wise, we will take this text to heart. Let me make it even more painful by addressing those in the danger zone. By the way, I don't know who you are, but it must be said that if you are playing fast and loose with your life, 
if you are ignoring God's word or the parts that you don't like. Or if you are ignoring his warnings and you are going your own way and you are calling your own shots, your heart is hardening. And that is a scary thought. If your heart is hardening, then please, please, please run to the cross immediately. He is merciful and he is mighty to save. In fact, he is the only God who can save. Salvation comes from the Lord and only from the Lord. God's word tells us in 2 Peter 3.9 that he is patient with us, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. 1 Timothy 2.4, God wants all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Repent. That means turn around. Before time's up. Have him be the boss of you. For the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him, respect him, honor him, know him as their boss. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. How? It's the cross. It's the ninth and tenth plague. The ninth plague. It was the plague of darkness. This was not the last time darkness came as a sign of God's judgment. Another day came when it became unnaturally dark as a man hung on a cross from noon until three in the afternoon. Darkness came all over the land about the Ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Oh, we know. The plagues fell on Jesus so they wouldn't fall on us. At the cross, the maker became unmade so that we could be remade. His son, his one and only son, the Lamb of God painted his blood on the wood of the cross so eternal death would pass over us. Jesus was struck down and there was chaos. The rocks split. The earth shook. It was the ultimate moment of uncreation. Christ absorbed the judgment of God's wrath. 
God is forgiving, but he never lets sin go unpunished. And so Jesus bore the punishment. He bore the ultimate plague for us. For those in Christ, the judgment is over. We know it because of Easter morning. That is our proof that his sacrifice worked. The son, who was dead, came back to life. The resurrection of Jesus is the promise and the beginning of all recreation. It's the promise of our recreation. Don't you know, Paul says, all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We were buried with him through baptism so that just as Christ was raised from the dead, we too may live a new life. And if we've been united with him like this in his death, we'll certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with so that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. Do you know what this is saying? It's saying that we're free. We are connected to Jesus, and so that we've died already. We've died to sin when he died for our sin. The judgment is over. It doesn't apply to us because it already applied to us. Take this to heart. Commit this one to memory. Therefore, There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit, here it is, set me free from the law of sin and death. You are set free from sin, the punishment of sin, and you have been set free from death. God loves you and forgives you, and has set you free. Well, you know, I started out this message talking about how sometimes I I don't mind being told what to do, uh, but most of the other times I really don't like being told what to do and where to go. But there is a time when I love it, when I absolutely love it. It's a day like today. It's when my Savior speaks. It's when he invites me and you, we together to commune at his table for forgiveness. He tells us, Come to me. (laughs) 
come with your sins. Come with your failures. Come with your dumb ideas and your disobedience. Come with your fake gods and let me take it from you. You come and receive what is true and what is real. It is my body and it is my blood for your forgiveness and the strengthening of your faith so that you may live forgiven and free. Oh, it is a good Sunday. <laughs> what is the response to all this? But thank you. Say thank you, Lord, for being such a great boss by becoming a servant all the way to the cross. Thank you for taking the plagues that we deserve. You are the only one who saves us. And so we thank you for your never-ending love and forgiveness. Amen. And now let us prepare our hearts as he tells us what to do. Our Lord Jesus Christ, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he gave it to them, saying, Take and eat. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way also, he took the cup after supper. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you, for the forgiveness of sin. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. I invite you to come to the table of the Lord.